we're reading from John's Gospel, chapter 8. Yes, that's right. Did read this in preparation for this morning, thankfully. So John chapter 8 from verse 12 to verse 59. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true, because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Once more Jesus said to them, I am going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Who are you? They asked. Just what I have been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy, and what I have heard from him I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in, my, in the father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only, only father we have is God himself. 
Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason that you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Thank you so much, Richard. So our outline of where we're going is in the leaflet and in very small font is the passage there, but you'll hopefully be able to read it. So we've been working our way through John's Gospel. Let's, let's come and pray. Our loving Father, please steady us now as we come and hear the living word of Jesus Christ and help us to appreciate him better and help us to listen to him so that we can believe. Amen. You've probably not wondered what Jerusalem looked like at night. Without electric lights, without street lights, the only lighting would have been small household oil lamps and the occasional torch on the walls of the temple. On the whole, Jerusalem at night would have been in darkness. Except, of course, during the Feast of the Tabernacles. The Feast of the Tabernacles was the most popular of the three annual feasts in Jerusalem. It lasted a whole week and it occurred after the harvest had been brought in. So it was a real time of celebration and partying which would go on into the night. And in the temple, in the outer courtyard of the women, four huge lamps were set up, four large bowls placed high on stands, filled with olive oil, and with the old linen garments of the priests as wicks, these four lights would enlighten the whole courtyard area of the temple. And that is the context for Jesus to say, I am the light of the world. The temple courtyard was where Jesus taught. We're still on the last and greatest day of the Feast of the Tabernacles. Jesus speaks once again to the people gathered there and he says, I am the light. I am the light of the world. What does he mean? The Feast of the Tabernacles was a feast which celebrated God's salvation of his people from Egypt through the Exodus. So the Jews would remember how God led them in a pillar of fire by night through the desert. Hence the four great lamps or lights in the temple. But as well as that, the festival of the tabernacle or tents, um, the Jews would make small makeshift shelters on their roofs or in their courtyards and overlay them with palm branches and sleep in them for the week. And they'd remember then, as they were sleeping outside, how God protected the Israelites, their ancestors, in the wilderness when they'd sleep in flimsy shelters. This was a very, very important time for the Jews because as they'd lie there, they'd kind of look up through the fronds of the palm branches to the, to the night sky and then they'd see the little stars twinkling 
through and they'd remember where it all began of God's promise to Abraham when God took Abraham outside and had Abraham look up and see the vast multitude of stars and to him God made the promise, so shall your offspring be. And the Jews would lie there in their booths and they would think we are the fruit of that promise. We are the children of Abraham. And it's in this context that Jesus stands up in this same temple court with the lamps providing the stage setting for his claim, his announcement. I am the light of the world. What's he claiming? First of all, think of just of his words. The light he speaks of is not an enlightening that he gives us, some new understanding that helps us sort of navigate our path through life. Because the light is not something passed on to us, it's he himself, I am the light of the world. And it's also not a fixed light, like a lighthouse. It moves. Jesus said, he who follows me will never walk in darkness. The light is Jesus, and to stay in the light, we have to move with him. We have to follow him, or else we will find ourselves in the darkness. What does it mean to find ourselves in the light? Well, Jesus said, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, whose opposite is death. So to be in the light of Jesus is to possess eternal life. It has to mean that. But with it, there's another meaning because with death comes despair and hopelessness and futility and in contrast to be in the light to possess eternal life means therefore to have hope and joy and purpose instead of hopelessness and despair and futility. And then also there's a moral aspect too because um, of moving away from the darkness of sin which leads to death. In verse 32, Jesus speaks of us being slaves to sin and the truth will set us free. So by his words, Jesus is claiming to be the source of eternal life and of personal hope and of moral freedom for those who follow him. Now I wish... Jesus had, had, had enough time to develop this. But he's interrupted after making his statement by a whole lot of objections that are put to him and then Jesus answers those objections. Now, whilst we would have liked to hear Jesus speak about what being the light of life means, the light of the world means, it's helpful to hear the objections. Um, and to hear how Jesus answers the objections. You know, these are objections which we ourselves can have of Jesus. And maybe you're thinking, hang on, wait a minute. I'm in church here. I'm not a Pharisee. I believe in Jesus. But we need to see that Jesus moves from answering the Pharisees to answering the Jews to answering people who've believed in him. And they voice their objections. And Jesus' strongest words are, observed, are reserved for them. Right. So we need to look at the objections. And the context is really important. Jesus made this claim in the Jewish temple at the high point of the Feast of Tabernacles. The lamps are his backdrop. And the lamps, of course, are a symbol of God, recalling the image of God as a pillar of light, a pillar of fire. And light, in that sense, is a symbol of God 
bringing salvation. So when Jesus says, I am the light, you, you hear what he's saying. I am the Lord God, the Saviour. This is a claim to deity. You remember God's name, Yahweh, I am? These are the words Jesus says, I am the light. And we say, well, that's fine, but a bit, think a bit more. I am the light of the world, meaning I am the saviour of the world, not just of Israel. And we say, that's good, because I'm not Jewish. But think for a moment, if Jesus is the saviour of the world, what does that say about other faiths? He's saying they're all dead ends. Because he and only he is the saviour. He doesn't say, I am a light of the world. He says, I'm the light. He uses that word, the the light of the world, meaning that those who don't follow him are in the darkness of death and hopelessness and ignorance, no matter how sophisticated or sincere or lovely they may appear. Now, this is prickly, isn't it? Because it rubs against the grain, the grain of secularism, which says human flourishing is about following yourself. New York University, this year, at its commencement service, had as its guest speaker... Taylor Swift, and at New York University, commencement service, Taylor Swift, the great prophetess, and she said in her commencement service speech at New York University, I've got good news and I've got bad news. The good news is that you can be anything you want, and it's all up to you, and the bad news is it's all up to you. It's all up to far out. No wonder people are anxious. Well, according to Jesus, good news, you are not the saviour of yourself and you don't have to be. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the sole saviour of the world. If you follow me, you won't be in darkness. This is good news. He gives us the freedom to say, I'm not God and I don't have to be. He is. He is the I am. He is the unique light of all the world. And if you look on your outline, what follows are five questions or movements in reaction to this exclusive claim of Jesus about himself. We're going to go through them and you, as it goes through the passage. And you might find yourself identifying with them as we question Jesus' claim to be the light of the world. First question. How can Jesus say this? How can he claim this about himself? That's what the Pharisees are saying in verse 13 when they say, your testimony is not valid. You've got no right to say that about yourself. Jesus says, I do because of where I came from. I come from heaven and where I'm going. I'm going back to heaven. And I can say that of myself because of my unique relationship to God the Father who sent me. And he says, because all that's true, whether you accept or reject what I'm saying, that reveals what your own relationship to the Father is. Can you imagine his audacity? He says to the leading lights of Judaism, you don't know God. Imagine that. Gee, the Archbishop of Canterbury was just in Adelaide a few weeks ago. Imagine saying, you don't know God. Justin Welby, who are you? You don't know God. That's what Jesus says to the Pharisees. You don't know me or my father. If you knew me, you'd know my father as well. What's he saying? 
If you don't accept I come from the Father, you have no, that shows you have no relationship with the Father. <laughs> My goodness. Now, what are the, again, what are the implications for people of other faiths? Or for the majority of Australians who won't bend their knee to Jesus as the Son of God? This is the second question. What if we don't believe Jesus' word about himself as the light of the world? Well, he puts it plainly. His answer is, we will die in our sins. He says it three times in verses 21 to 30. Verse 21, to the Jews, you will die in your sin. Verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins. Verse 24, again, if you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Get the point? From Jesus' own lips, in other words, it matters, it matters what people believe about him. It's not just okay to be free-for-all and believe whatever you want. If you do not believe that I am he, says Jesus, or literally, if you do not believe that I am, in other words, the Lord God, Yahweh, the one and living God, you will die in your sins, he says. Now, if, if we think we've misheard him, not so, verse 26, I have much to say in judgment of you, says Jesus. And we think, why so absolute? Why so offensive? He gives his reasons. He says, look, I haven't made this up. Verse 26, my father told me to say this, and my father is reliable. He passed on to me what he wants the world to know, and now I've passed it on to you. He says, verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man on the cross, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be. I do nothing of my own. I speak just what the Father has taught me. According to Jesus, it's at the cross that the Jews will know that he is telling the truth even though they will deny it. Now, in my sermon, I just want to say I've written a whole section on how the Jews would know at the moment of crucifixion that Jesus really is who he said he is. But for the sake of time, I'm jumping it to be kind. Right? But if you want to ask me, come and talk to me. Third question. What if we hold to this word about himself? We've heard what happens if we reject it. What if we hold his word about himself? To the Jews who had believed him, verse 31, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, then you're really my disciples. And then you'll know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Now, to us, these are wonderful words of promise, but to the Jews, even those who believed in him, they sound judgmental because they are implying that they are not free. And that's why they object. We've never been slaves of anyone. I mean, they have been, right? So they, but they know their history. They're not ignorant of their history. They're not talking about that. They're talking about a deeper slavery and saying spiritually, they have always been free agents. They have been morally and spiritually free, even though they've been oppressed at different times. Um, in other words, they have been able to decide to follow God on their own terms. Now, in our culture, this is very similar when we hear people talking about free will whenever the topic of evil comes up. Say, well, but we've all got free will. Now, in one sense, of course, we do have free will, don't we? We, we are able to choose freely how to respond to what God tells us. We're, we are our own moral agents. We're held responsible for what we do. But there is an assumption often within this um, view that Jesus just won't go along with 
And that is our wills are not corrupted in the first place. Jesus, in other words, does not think we are innately good. He doesn't think we're even neutral in exercising our free wills. Matthew 7, verse 11. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, and then he goes, if, if you then know you're evil. He doesn't think we're free or good. We get sin wrong if we reduce it to just the bad things we do or the good things we don't do. That, that might be 30% out there, but the 70% is actually our fallenness, our corruption. And it's a little meaningless talking about free will if all we're talking about is a path, is which path we're away from God we're going to choose, <laughs> right? That's the slavery to which Jesus points to in verse 34 when he says, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Um, the reality is, and we know it, none of us are completely free to stop ourselves from sinning. Um, why are is every New Year's Day full of new New Year's resolutions. I mean, didn't they work last year? I know of a school chaplain who spoke to his students on this verse, verse 34, about being slaves to sin. He challenged the boys of that school that if any of them could obey even just the Ten Commandments for a week, they ought to write him a message and, and let him know how, how they got on. After the week, he'd received one message. And on it were the words, sir, I couldn't do it. This is the moral problem we all face. We are fallen. Later on, the Apostle John would write, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. In ourselves, Jesus says, the problem is we are slaves to sin. And even if you're following Jesus, you still struggle with inner sinful promptings and you experience that conflict between the flesh and the spirit. We need redemption, that's the point. And Jesus promises it. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, Christians are those who come to Jesus, who, who follow him in the light, to be free from our sin. When we follow him, when we walk in his light, the temptation to sin eventually decreases. We rightfully acknowledge him as Lord, not our sin. Our sin isn't Lord. When you become a Christian, you say, Jesus is Lord. That kicks off the throne of your heart, sin as your master. And he gives us help in times of temptation when we call out to him. He enables us to resist. He de decreases our desire. In other words, real help, real change is possible when someone walks in the light, when they follow him. But sin still remains a force, it still, and it will be so until he comes and transforms our sinful flesh, until he fully redeems our hearts. Until that, we'll always experience conflict and struggle, but he will come and redeem us fully. I don't know about you, but I'm so looking forward to that day. Um, you know, you get these Facebook feeds, don't you? There was one that came across my feed a, a few weeks ago which just echoed, struck a chord, said the best thing about heaven will be I won't struggle anymore with sin. And if you've struggled and you know, you know the pain of it, it'll echo. I don't know that that'll be the best thing about heaven, but you know, this side of heaven maybe it seems the best. 
when the battle with the flesh is over, when the thoughts of disobeying won't even enter our heads, when every inclination of our being will be to love God with every ounce of our being in an undistracted way. I am so ready for that transformation. Here is the promise. If the Son sets you free, you will be free from sin. Verse 36, Jesus promises it. And then verse 51, if we hold to Jesus' words about himself, we will be free from death, which comes from sin. That is Jesus' promise to everyone who keeps holding on to his unique claim about himself. But if we say we believe, but we reject this word, Jesus says, guess what? You might be religious, but you show, you've just shown up who's your real father. To the Jews who believed in him, he says, I know you're Abraham's descendants. You're celebrating this in the Feast of the Tabernacles. You've made your little booth. You're camping out at night. You say you're Abraham's descendants, but you're ready to kill me because you have no room for your word in your hearts about myself. Is it possible to be a Christian and not accept Jesus' exclusive claims? There are lots of people who would say yes. Jesus' words to the Jews speak to us. He says the truth is you're not Abraham's children, not really, not in the sense of being children who display the family likeness because Abraham never strived to, strived to kill someone sent from God, but you're determined to do so. And then it comes out, they protest, we're not illegitimate children. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus says no. If God were your father, you'd love me because I came from God and, and am now here, sent from the Father. But the fact that you're unable to hear what I say shows that your true father is the murderer, the devil. And that's the answer to the fourth question. What does our response to Jesus' words say about who we are? If we love Jesus, God is our father. Jesus says if you're unable to accept his unique claim about himself, your true father's the devil. He's always been a murderer. He's been the father of lies. But if you can't prove me guilty of sin, why don't you believe me? The real reason you're not hearing is because you don't belong to God. Now, I think that this must be about the most offensive thing that Jesus says. I can't really think of something more offensive to say that your father is the devil. I also think it's the most insightful and true because no one has lived a truer life than Jesus Christ. No one commands more respect than he. There's no greater teacher than he. He was sent by the Father to be the saviour of the world. He's unique, he's unparalleled before or since. He's the only one who lived that perfect life. He's the only one who died for the sins of the world. The only one to have risen from the dead. The only one to have proved his position as the divine son of God. The only one able to save people from sin and death. So if that's the case, why won't people stop saying they, they can just save themselves? Why won't we admit that our free will is corrupt and we need help? What is so hard about saying we need Jesus and he's the answer? The answer has got to be a spiritual one, doesn't it? That people belong to the devil. In the fifth movement, we see where rejection of Jesus' unique claim leads. In verse 48... There's slander. 
aren't we right in saying you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? And Samaritan is not a good term. Good Samaritan was something that was, you know, an oxymoron. You're a Samaritan. You're demon-possessed. Jesus said, I'm not possessed by a demon. My concern is to honour my Father and his concern is to glorify me. And then he gives the promise, if anyone keeps my word, they will never see death. And they say, now we know you're demon-possessed. Because he's, he's Jesus making himself out to be greater than even Abraham, because even Abraham died. And they're incredulous. Who do you think you are? Once again, Jesus takes us back to his unique relations with the Father. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you obviously don't know him, because if you did, you'd be listening to me. But I know him, and if I said I didn't, I'd only be a liar like you. He's very inflammatory, but you can't fault his logic. He's driving their rejection of him to its conclusion about what it says about them and God. And then Jesus comes back to Abraham. He says, Abraham, the guy you keep coming back to, he rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. And then he says, guess what? He did see it and was glad. Now, the only way Jesus could say with knowledge that Abraham saw my day and was glad is if Abraham was alive in heaven and looking down and for Jesus to say Abraham was glad at the prospect of seeing his day, it means that Jesus, before he became a human being, before he was born, must have spoken to Abraham before he entered the world. You see what he's claiming? Finally, they're working it out. You are not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Now there's not just slander, there's outrage. And then comes Jesus' clearest and most unambiguous statement of all about himself. I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. Slander, outrage, next, violence. At Jesus' words, they pick up stones to stone him, but he hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds. Okay, that's John 8. I wonder what's going on in your heart at the moment. In the end, it's just impossible to remain neutral about Jesus, isn't it? Either you accept him as the unique son of God, as the saviour of the world, you follow him, you walk in his light, you trust that with him is freedom from sin and death, or you reject his word about himself as arrogance and lies, and you're offended at Jesus saying you don't know God, that your father is the devil, and then out will come in your heart slander and rage and even violence in your heart towards him. In the end, they're the two reactions. But I want you to see how the chapter ends. Both of those reactions are in the chapter, but who has the last word? It is Jesus and his exclusive word about himself, stating that he is the Lord I am. He is Yahweh. He is God in the flesh. And despite the slander, the rage, the violence against him, he gets away because his hour has not yet come. The Father protects him to do his most important work, which will be to go to the cross to lay down his life for us.
Well, it seems that if we have heard what John has said in John chapter 8, there is only one thing to do in application, and that is to believe Jesus' word about himself as the unique son of God, to believe that he is the sole saviour of the world. If we've been listening, that's the thing we must do and keep doing. And then if that's the case, there's only one thing we must not do. Um, we must not reject him, we must not say, I believe in Jesus, but this is too extreme. You can't cherry pick his words, taking only the bits you like. You know, him being our saviour without taking the other bits about him being the only saviour, the light of the world. Because to say we believe him but to disbelieve the father told him to say about himself shows who our real father is, the father of lies, the devil, who would have us believe lies about Jesus. Besides which, Jesus says, if we do not believe that he is the one he says he is, we will die in our sins. In the end, there can be no such thing as a believer who is soft on what Jesus says. Because a person who is soft on what Jesus says doesn't follow he who is the light of the world. Well, that's the pointy end of what he said. There's another side too. And it, the side, it's the side that Jesus began with. And it is good news. And I want you to hear it. I don't want you to think this chapter has all been about being prickly. Because when Jesus stood up, he was announcing good news. The good news that he is the light of the world. And he made a promise. If you follow him, you will never walk in darkness. Never. That's the Father's promise to us this morning through his Son. That is what the Spirit is saying to us. May we take it to heart and believe. Amen.